This is Dave Moss of the Unfunded List, and I'm pleased to bring you the Open Door Philanthropy Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Today, I've been invited to New York City to visit the apartment of Elizabeth McCormick. I've never met her before, but I have heard of her. She has advised some of the most prolific philanthropies in existence. She served on the boards of MacArthur Foundation and Atlantic Philanthropies, and for years had the ear of the Rockefellers. As I ride up to New York City on the Acela train, I ponder what her life must have been like. She was a nun, a teacher, a college president, a wife, and an advisor to John D. Rockefeller III. There's a joke in there somewhere, a college president, a philanthropist, a Jewish man's wife, and a nun walk into a bar, and then she sits down in one seat. To learn more about her, I utilize Amtrak's complimentary wireless internet and Google her name. Elizabeth McCormick has been an advisor to the Rockefeller family since 1988. She earned her BA at Manhattanville College and a PhD in philosophy at Fordham University. In her senior year at Manhattanville, Elizabeth joined the Order of the Sacred Heart and soon began teaching at its schools, Kenwood in Albany and then later in Greenwich. In 1962, she became Dean at Manhattanville. Appointed president in 1966, she led its transformation from an elite Catholic women's institution into a non-denominational co-ed college. After Manhattanville, she became director of the Rockefeller Philanthropy Offices and remains a philanthropic advisor to members of the family. Among her many philanthropic endeavors, McCormick has chaired the Partnership for Palliative Care in New York since 2008, served as director of Atlantic Philanthropy since 1986, been a trustee to the Juilliard School of Music since 1997, and has been a member of the Council on Foreign Relations since 1975. That's a career to be envied for sure, and I will have no shortage of questions for this amazing woman. I really want to know what it's like to advise such formidable philanthropies. First of all, thank you very much for inviting me to your home, Elizabeth. This is, this is a lovely place where you live. If you don't mind, I'd like to just get started and ask you some questions. Yes, Because I believe in the principle of fairness, I'll start... Uh, by telling you a little bit about my own childhood. So I grew up in a town called Waterville, Maine. You may have heard of Colby College, uh, which, which is right there in Waterville. My parents were professors there. Right next to Colby College, is a, there's a, a Catholic school called Mount Mercy, and then also a convent behind the, behind the school. They were just up the street from us. Uh, I am, myself, Jewish, which in Waterville, Maine, is a very rare thing uh, to be. Very, very small Jewish population. Most of the people in Waterville were very confused about what a Jew is. But uh, I did grow up down the street from a convent, and uh, the nuns would, most usually in the evenings, uh, go for walks, and they would always walk right in front of my house. And I had a cat, my best friend growing up, named Rose, who was very, very friendly. Every time somebody walked by our house, the uh, she would the cat would go out and greet them and and, and have a little visit. So I got to know uh, it was a sister Agnes and sister Elizabeth actually. Uh, who would walk by my house every evening. And uh, that was basically my entire, all of my Catholic education <laughs> were those conversations uh, with, the, with those lovely ladies. I, I imagine you perhaps had uh, a little bit more Catholic education in your upbringing. Could you tell me a little bit about your childhood? Where did you grow up?
I was wondering why it was called Manhattanville. <laughs> How about that? Convent Avenue. It was sold before I was involved, except as a student. Uh, it was sold to City University. Mm. And it is now part of their campus. Mm. And the college moved to purchase New York, where it is now. And so when I was there, uh, not as a student, but as a dean, it was in purchase. Mm -hmm. And I was there for nearly 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then before I left, I was offered a job by the Rockefeller family. Mm. I've heard of them. I've heard of them. <laughs> a lot. Yeah, I would think, and, yeah. Uh, it was to work with the children of the Rockefeller brothers. Mm -hmm. That was John Rockefeller, uh, David, mm -hmm. the youngest, and then he died. Very recently. Very recently. And between John and David, there was Nelson, the governor, mm -hmm. and Lawrence, a philanthropist, mm -hmm. and another brother who never was in New York. Mm -hmm. Thank you for making the time for me. Uh, this may be a first for me that someone went from a meeting with me to a meeting with Rockefellers. I think that may be the first time <laughs> that I've had that pleasure. I, mean, I have met, uh, so there's a few that are my age. I've met Justin uh, and Wyatt, and they are, they, they Justin seem, and Wyatt. Yes. Very nice guys. Very nice guys. Uh, and involved in, in um, some causes that, that I've also been involved now, in. you see, they are Cousins were the ones I went to work with. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's the ones you know are their children. Mm -hmm. um, they, they seem to me to be uh, quite thoughtful philanthropists. And so to the extent that that's the, the um, descendants of your teachings, thank you for doing that. Um, but I'd like to talk a little bit more about before you met them, um, you know, what you were like. You were saying you, you were born here in the city, and then when, how old were you when you moved to Larchmont? Very little. Very, very, so do you remember living in the city at all? In the city? Yeah. Yes. Do you, what, do you have, what are your, some of your early memories of well, living here? I in the... loved the city, mm -hmm. right away, mm -hmm. and I love being, living here now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also have a house in Fallen, New York, mm -hmm. which is um, it's between the Hudson River and the Connecticut, Fallen. Mm -hmm. right. I believe I've driven past it. You have. On <laughs> Route 22. Uh, yes. So Please go ahead. I went to college, and sometime during 
For how long? Well, right after college, we were mid seventies. That's quite some. That's quite a. That's, that's quite a long time. Longer than I've done anything. I'm thirty-five years old. That's a long time. Uh, which does mean I can. I'm now old enough to be president. Uh, yeah. But overqualified, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As a nun, I taught. Mm -hmm. And uh, I lived in Albany, in Greenwich. There were two places where I was. Mm. And then Manhattanville. I loved high school teaching. And I was the headmistress of the nuns controlled school in Greenwich. Convent mm. of the Sacred Heart, Greenwich, Connecticut. Four years. In college, decided to be a nun. Now, uh, I have very little understanding of what that process is like. <laughs> does, it, does it take a long time to become a nun? To think about it and then do it. Took a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, big decision. Mm -hmm. It's a very big decision to make, I would. Simple faith, I won't touch it. Uh, and I now think what my friends in college were doing. They were graduating from college, marrying very quickly, mm -hmm. and having many children. Mm -hmm. Did you feel as though that was the only other option for you? Well, there were many options mm. back in the 40s. Mm. Women became teachers or nurses. Mm. Uh, my grandmother, uh, who uh, would be about your age, uh, did become a, a teacher uh, and also got married and, and had kids. Yeah, she had a wonderful, lovely life, certainly. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think, um, you know, the, the, fortunately, the young women of today are... are uh, have a lot more options and, and choices that they can make. And so I became a nun. And the actual doing of that meant living in Albany. Mm -hmm. And um, to begin with, and then once the two and a half years of training ended, I went to Greenwich and taught in the school. And I loved Mm -hmm. uh, I can say, I, uh, I believe you, I can, I can sort of say, I was raised by teachers and uh, I think that is a, it's a certain type of person and uh, I think I've, uh, at this point, can tell if someone's a good teacher very early on. One of the things 
have tried. <laughs> and I think you're right. I find that um, both with teaching and with fundraising, I think I, I agree wholeheartedly. Listening is it really with everything. Yeah. Uh, and I do think, you know, a lot of the folks out there uh, who, who come through our program and who are struggling to fundraise, it, I, I do think that the, it may be a lack of listening on their part. Um, yeah. That is just, that is, um, that is, this is very good information. Uh, so I have a friend who's trying to start a Catholic Nonprofit for kids, uh, where he takes the kids to mass. They do some um, some conversation, leadership development stuff, uh, and then they actually spend the afternoon surfing. He works in surfing communities, uh, and he has a program where he sort of connects Catholic values with with surfing. I'm not exactly sure. Surfing? Are you familiar with you know Kawabunga? Uh, on the you ride the waves on a board. Oh, yeah. Surfing. Uh, it seems to me Jesus walked on water, so there must. Be, there, perhaps there's something, <laughs> perhaps there's something to what he's doing. But it was very. Uh, uh, the conversation was interesting to me um, to hear about um, uh, the the uh, how much philanthropy have, actually happens in the Catholic Church. Uh, he was he's actively trying to get into the the system or whatever to be an official Catholic charity, so he can be considered by local dioceses and stuff for grants. Uh, and when I was talking to him, I realized for the first time that uh, often nuns, priests, bishops, and cardinals are actually making considerable philanthropy decisions. Um, this is just something I've recently, <laughs> I've recently learned about. You know, those young, those perhaps those young ladies uh, that were visiting with Rose, my cat, uh, were later making large grants to local programs. I don't know. Uh, did you have Did you have experience in philanthropy as a as a nun, or were you only teaching? As a in your role as a as a nun inside the Catholic Church, were you involved in philanthropy? Not at all. But are are any of the are are some nuns? Well, I think depending on your role. Mm -hmm. Right. So you were assigned to be a I teacher. Was the president of a college. I was involved mm -hmm. in raising money. Yes, of course. I grew up on a campus. Uh, we had um, the uh, so when I was a kid, it was President Cotter, and I remember when he retired, and then a man who you may have met uh, named Bro Adams took over uh, as as president. He's now president of the um, National Endowment for Humanities, which <laughs> that may not have been the best um, uh, career. Well, I mean, I would I, if someone offered me to be the chairman of the. National Endowment, I'd take that job too. But uh, being president of Colby's fun job too. Um, yes. Uh, but I am aware, and I also, my best friend was um, a, young man, a young man named Bert Helm. Um, 
one of my best friends growing up, and his father was uh, the vice president at Coley, but then became president of Muhlenberg College, uh, and is now uh, interim president at UMass Dartmouth or something of that sort. Uh, he also, um, uh, Randy is his name, Randy Helm, uh, is on a committee. He reviews grants for um, uh, MacArthur and some other things. Um, and I, you know, I think I suspect I know the answer to this question, but there seems to be a lot of overlap between academia and philanthropy. Um, a lot of the people who run programs at the big foundations used to be professors or college presidents. You used to be a college president. Um, is that just that being a college president is fundraising? And so you learn a lot? Yes, a lot of fundraising mm -hmm. and being a college president. Mm -hmm. People who have that experience raising money on a college are going to know just all the ins and outs. Uh, yeah. Some of them are good. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Currently, uh, and somewhat unfortunately, the uh, legal drinking age has become an incredible thorn in their side. The age was not 21 when you were president. No. Um, and, uh, you I know, forget what it was, but there, it was not a problem. Uh, how do you I mean? Was there no drinking on no. Manhattan? Not at all. There just wasn't. I'm sure there was some, mm -hmm. but there was no legal mm -hmm. drinking. Mm -hmm. On the uh, on the interview I watched with you, uh, he asked uh, about uh, your mentors, and you mentioned someone named uh, Mother Elizabeth Cavanaugh. Yes. Uh, but uh, that was it. You just said you just said her name. I was wondering, could you tell me about uh, Mother Elizabeth Cavanaugh? She taught me in high school, mm -hmm. and she was a very attractive, very smart young nun. Mm -hmm. She was intelligent. She was. I admired her and uh, trusted her. And uh, she became an advisor. Now, she never raised the question would you like to become a nun? Mm. Never. But when I was thinking about it, I talked to her. Mm -hmm. hmm. um, and the other mentor that you that you mentioned in that interview was, uh, you've already mentioned on this, uh, John D. Rockefeller III. Uh, I think um, a lot of people would be interested to hear <laughs> about your experience meeting him. Um, how did you come to work for him? Did they, you were the president and they approached you? or? I, um, I worked in the Rockefeller office, which I still do, mm -hmm. the family office. Mm -hmm. So they moved to a more modern office across the street, mm -hmm. and I'm there. Mm -hmm. One Rockefeller Plaza. Um, he was the oldest brother, very interesting man, shy, smart, nice to me, and he was the one I asked immediately when I got the job. Because I've been a college president, I have opportunities 
to be our non-profit board, mm -hmm. to be our foundation board, and to be our corporate board. Now, I would like from you authorization to do that and be on board without getting authorization for every one of them, but never taking so much time that I neglect my work here. Mm -hmm. And he gave me that mm -hmm. permission. So I never just did the Rockefeller work, which was a big help mm. because it's it, working for one family, even a very prominent one, is limiting. Mm -hmm. And so I, I got to know him. Now, four years after I went there, he died in a car accident mm. on his way from home to 30 Rock. He died. So then the one I knew best was Lawrence Rock. Someone younger brother. Mm -hmm. They're all dead now. Mm -hmm. This but, will happen. Mm -hmm. That'll happen. The time passes. <laughs> yeah, and I'm very old. Mm. So, I mean, 95, most people are gone. But were well, your contemporaries. Mm -hmm. And they were older than I was. Mm -hmm. Um, it, uh, David just passed, I believe. I, I believe I read he was 103. Two, one or two. That's that's a lot. I hope I I hope I get that many years. So uh, what I'm interested, I'm, I, what I'd be, uh, what I'm particularly interested in. You said several things there that I'm interested in. Being limiting to work for just one family. One of the things that I assumed and assumed incorrectly when I started out as a philanthropist is that a lot of is that the big major philanthropists spoke to each other often and collaborated with each other. On what they were doing, <laughs> um, I'd be, I'd be. So you were involved. If correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Atlantic Philanthropies, uh, MacArthur, uh, the Rockefeller Philanthropies, having been, you know, being able to be on the inside of all three of those things, uh, were you able to, like, was there some communication between those entities? Yes, yes. There is. And uh, I think, uh, first of all, the reason I think it's important for philanthropies and individual philanthropies mm -hmm. to know one another and to, if not work together, at least talk mm -hmm. and know one another, mm -hmm. is there's not enough money to go around. And philanthropists, and I don't think this is true, of Jewish philanthropies, <laughs> but other philanthropies move from this interest to that interest. Mm, yes. And they leave uh, an area when it still has great needs mm -hmm. it, because they're bored. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And new people come on board, and new chairmen, and new executive directors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This can be this can be harmful. That's right, and they say, 
oh well, we've done this for too long. That's a huge mistake. Mm -hmm. Because it's not done, you know? You're not finished. You have not solved this problem. Yes. <laughs> I think a lot, of, a lot of the philanthropists out there want to be, the, what they want is to be relevant. Right? They want people to write positive news stories about them or... Uh, or when they go to cocktail parties, they want everybody to know that they are, you know, generous, effective philanthropists. Uh, and so they, they go after, you know, exciting new things. Uh, they try something thinking that it'll make a big splash. It doesn't work. And they, they, they back out of it, which. And which may <laughs> be because they don't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. Happy birthday. Thank you. I was 95. 95. I would have guessed 29. Uh, yeah, I was Yes, it is. It's not romantic. You'd rather give to a program. Mm -hmm. So they decided to raise $10 million for the Asian Cultural Council for general operating expenses. And they did it. Uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the unfunded that send me proposals are struggling with. Uh, some of them are able to raise money for programs, but not for for their operations. When I worked with the young Rockefellers, mm -hmm. I wrote hundreds of letters for them giving money. Mm -hmm. And it would say, Mary Ann Rockefeller was very interested in your initiative, your program, and then I'd say sentence about it. However, she wishes her gift That must be a very nice letter for them to receive. <laughs> I can imagine, yes. Yeah, they need money. These things are getting expensive, especially you know a lot of nonprofits headquartered in places like D.C., San Francisco, New York, where just just trying to live in a one-bedroom place is, is you know you can't do that on the on the, the salaries most of these folks are able to offer. It's uh, and it causes a lot of turnover, right? Institutional memory gets lost. Um, it, uh, it is a, it is a major concern for me. Uh, and, uh, I'm actually quite pleased to hear, uh, that it seems to be a concern of yours as well. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll get through this. <laughs> well, what would you, what would you tell, what would be your advice to someone that's having trouble raising their operating dollars? How sh what should they be saying to donors or what should they be listening for? Uh, well, small operating, a, a foundation. 
interests are of the person you're talking to. And most people I've met now, many people looking for money, mm -hmm. and they talk too much. They come with a speech mm -hmm. about that. Mm -hmm. Perfectly prepared, Perfect. scored. And you cannot interrupt them. Mm. Mm -hmm. One day, and this is a good example, one day I was meeting with Lawrence Rockefeller, and he had an appointment with a university. And I said, I always did this with him. Your appointment is coming. Goodbye. And he said, no, stay. Stay. This university is going to ask me to fund a building named for my brother, Governor Rockefeller, and I'm not going to do it. Mm -hmm. But I would give them money for financial aid. They come, they spread out a plan for the building. Mm -hmm. Okay. Three times, I say, let's talk a little bit about financial aid. Never mm -hmm. changing. Mm-hmm. They leave, and he says, Elizabeth, nice try. <laughs> and I said, how, how could they possibly have missed that? Because if I hadn't heard it from you, I never could have said that. Mm -hmm. And he said, they're nervous when they come, mm -hmm. and they have a speech, Yep. and there's no changing them. Mm -hmm. Now, he was a wonderful philanthropist. I said, what are you going to do? Well, he said, it's a good university, and I'm not going to penalize them for the fact that their fundraisers mm -hmm. don't know how to listen. I'm going to give them the money for the financial aid, which <laughs> was never mentioned. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I've worked uh, in fundraising offices where you know they my sometimes my boss told me this is what you you have to go and and pitch. This is what we're raising money for. You don't necessarily have the option to to pivot out there. Uh, and a lot of it is I'm also a, a, an actor. I'm not a terribly good actor, as I mentioned. I did not get into Juilliard, um, but uh, you know I do know how to prepare. I do know how to learn my lines. Uh, learn my blocking, go up there and, 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 and do my performance. If someone in the audience were to then say, well, please do a play about financial aid instead. I'm not interested in this performance. I wouldn't, I really wouldn't be able to change tact. So I can kind of understand. But also I've been on the side, I've been, I've had to make decisions about grants and had to listen to fundraisers that only have this, this one thing that they're talking about. And it can be very difficult. I think that, I think you're right. The, the solution is, is uh, listening, yeah. listening. Well, I mean, obviously they're nervous. You're asking for money. But, uh, you know, listen. And I think the listening can happen on both sides. Um, I think there are probably also philanthropists that could use to listen more. Sounds like um, Lawrence uh, was very thoughtful about that. Well, he was um, very generous. Mm -hmm. Yes, this was uh, one of the things that I think most people know about the Rockefeller. <laughs> Did you ever have uh, a time when you, um, where you disagreed with one or several Rockefellers about where funds should go? Well... Mm -hmm. my interests. Mm -hmm. 
That must be difficult. Very difficult. And now and then someone would say, what would you do if this were your mind? <laughs> I thought, well, and then I'd tell them. Mm. But it isn't my mind. Mm. On the other hand, if I thought their giving money was a mistake that they shouldn't be giving, mm-hmm. as they were thinking, I would tell them that. And usually, usually, the reason is that the person running the organization is not good at the job. Mm-hmm. And no matter how important the organization is, it's got to be well run or your money is mm-hmm. wasted. It's very easy to waste money. But easier than to make it. Yeah, much easier. <laughs> I may I may waste some money later today. Uh, so I have a uh, a somewhat long question. Uh, so I hope you're comfortable. Um, so the uh, one of the things that's true about the Rockefellers is that the not only great philanthropists, but also you know, as you've mentioned, several of them have engaged in in public service. Uh, Nelson was governor of New York. I believe there was a, a lieutenant governor of Arkansas in the mix. Uh, and uh, I've actually met uh, the um, was it Jay Rockefeller, who was a Senator Rockefeller. Uh, I went to some hearings and stuff on some issues I cared about and uh, got a chance to speak with him once. I think it's it's very interesting to think about a large philanthropic family that also has members getting in, that you know, directly involved in public policy. Then today, uh, considerably more common, there are um, you know there's there's folks on both sides of the aisle uh, that are generous philanthropists, but also uh, trying to move public policy forward. Uh, here in New York, Bloomberg was mayor. You can't get a soda over a certain size now, <laughs> right? Which was a combination of him being mayor and also philanthropy that he was that he was pushing. Right? There's there's George Soros. Uh, I used to work for a guy named Jonathan Lewis, whose father was uh, Peter Lewis. Um, big donors, and one of the causes that, or the the two when I was working for them, the two main focuses were marijuana legalization. Uh, and uh, and uh, uh, gay marriage, making that making that, a, that an option. And when I was, this was 2006, I was working there, and those seemed like pipe dreams. Those are never going to happen. Never going to happen in my lifetime. Right now, uh, in in DC, I'm I can if I want. I'm not I'm not I'm not interested. But if I want, I could grow marijuana plants, and we could have all the marijuana we want there. It's perfectly legal. Uh, uh, and you can also I can marry anybody I, that that I choose. Uh, and that is because you know the the um, you know, not just supporting charities, uh, but trying to affect public policy. And of course, there um, uh, you know there are folks on the on the right doing that as well. Koch brothers uh, in the Jewish community. We have a guy named Sheldon Adelson, who uh, is um, uh, troubled. I would I would say I'm trying to be nicer about how I talk about philanthropists I don't agree with, um, but I think some of the decisions he makes are. Uh, a little misguided, and they're all around. You know, for him, it's he wants the he wants the embassy in Israel to be in Jerusalem instead of Tel Aviv. He's willing to spend five hundred million dollars upending our electoral system to make that happen. I think, I think the Rockefellers did a better job of marrying these things. As I mentioned, long question. I'm I'm wrapping up now. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you balanced out like public policy stuff with like you know tr- more traditional philanthropy things?
is to work in the area where he wants to give money. Mm -hmm. Because he'll learn. I think if you really want to bring about change, one of the things, if you have the temperament that you can, you should somehow work in government. Because government does bring about change. Mm -hmm. Look what we're going through right now. Mm -hmm. Big change. Yes. Which some people believe in and some people don't. But Trump is doing more change than he ever could have in his real estate. Mm -hmm. That's certainly true. What do you, this um, goes well into my next question. What do you think about President Trump? Uh, do you think he's you think he's doing a, a good job? Do you think there's any chance that he'll make positive change, the sort of change that, uh, that you might like to see? We can always hope. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, this is true, yes. <laughs> I happen to think up to this moment, it's a disaster. Mm -hmm. Um, yes, I am still amazed. It was several months ago, and amazed. I have a moment every day, still, every morning, where it occurs to me that that happened again, and I, <laughs> and you have to re you have to deal with it all over again every day. I find it very depressing. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, this thing yesterday with COVID. Mm-hmm. I saw that. Does he think anyone will believe him? <laughs> it's amazing. It is it's amazing is the word for it. Trump congratulated him for what he did to. Yeah. He, uh, I mean, am I? They used to, there was that old talk. How do you, how can you tell if a politician's lying? You know, his lips are moving. Uh, and obviously, that used to be an exaggeration. Um, so you are. Uh, I've, as I told you, you're my you're my third guest. Uh, but you're the uh, uh, and you're my second female guest, uh, and it's my second female guest with a PhD. Um, <laughs> it doesn't mean that that PhD is she's. Uh, this is a this is a podcast, so they can't see the gesture you're making, but she's oh, she's indicating that the PhD does not didn't mean anything. What do you? How, what well, do you, what it means is you, you've got a lot of guts mm -hmm. and a lot of the ability to see something through. Mm -hmm. It's a hard line. It takes a long time to get a PhD. Yes. 
particularly have to write the dissertation. Mm -hmm. And no one will help him. <laughs> what was your dissertation on? I did a, a degree in British philosophy, and it was about a man called F.H. Bradley. Hmm. What did he do? Very little. <laughs> <laughs> he was a great thinker mm -hmm. at Oxford. takes a lot of determination to finish it. And many people write after their names A, B, C. All but dissertation. Yes. And I always say, just write M.A. Uh, my mother got her Ph.D. in French literature uh, at Yale. Uh, my father was the, um, the mom comes from a fairly wealthy family. Uh, my father was well off, but the, he was the first person in his family to go to college uh, and did his entire career at Michigan State, undergrad uh, and everything else. Uh, and even he was teaching there for a little bit afterwards. Uh, and um, they met at a small college called Carthage College, which is in Kenosha. I've never, I've never been, uh, but that's where they met each other. Uh, and then uh, they were lucky to both get jobs at Colby College. It's a good college. Mm -hmm. number, number 12. I was just reading the um, ranked quite well. Just now retired. Um, my mother was at, uh, she finished her career at Duke as director of North American Studies, which is quite the title. <laughs> uh, and uh, dad dad retired quite some time ago. And But uh, he, so mom publishes, uh, but shorter articles and stuff. My father is a, an author, writes full-length books. Uh, and his last two have been about the history of golf in America. So they actually, they sell some copies. <laughs> his first book was about a guy named Jedediah Morse. Uh, it would be okay if you've never heard of him. Uh, his son invented the Morse code. <laughs> so obviously it's worth writing a book about this guy. <laughs> no, he was very much a renaissance man. He was a pastor and a painter, and uh, I think he wrote the first set of geography textbooks for, for schools in America. And, uh, it was an interesting man. If you're ever, you ever having trouble going to sleep, I, I recommend reading A Station of Peculiar Exposure, The Life of Jedediah Morse by, by Richard J. Moss. His more recent, so he wrote a book, The History of Country Clubs, and then also The History of Golf in America from 1900 to 2000. Um, very interesting stuff. The golf books, actually, there's a lot of, he had to do a lot of research into philanthropy. Um, uh, Bob, Bob Hope uh, started, doing charity, started doing charity golf tournaments, and they found out that you could make, make bring in a decent, amount of money that way. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the president every now and then holds charity, charity golf tournaments. I think I will uh, probably not play in those. I have another, I have another somewhat long question. Uh, this is the last of the long questions. Okay. Uh, so um, I mentioned uh, that I'm uh, Jewish and have had some involvement with um, some, some of the Jewish philanthropies here in town. Uh, I was one of the original board members of something called the Slingshot Fund, which is a giving circle 
for young Jews. So we would pool our money together and make general operating grants to young Jewish nonprofits. Uh, yeah, it's a great program. It's still around. Um, and uh, we would also have a, 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 an annual event called Slingshot Day. And we would bring in speakers. And uh, one of the panels uh, had some representatives from the Avi Chai Foundation. Uh, and then also it, uh, there was Charles Bronfman uh, and his donor advisor, whose name is Dr. Jeffrey Solomon. I don't know if you've ever had the chance uh, to meet those gentlemen, um, but um, major philanthropists, uh, the Bronfman's uh, the, from the Seagram's family. And this, uh, so both of those foundations were pursuing spend down strategies at that time. Uh, and I was, that was just really, I had, I really had never heard of that before. So I was 24, 25, I think, uh, when I was at this conference. The concept of, you know, you've got billions of dollars and you're saying, we wanna, we're trying to get these problems solved and we're going to give it all away by this time. Right, I the like the whole game where you try to make sure the endowment grows and 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 that's never been particularly interesting. I understand the the strategy behind it, but that's I'm not an investor. I'm not interested in percentages. And I want to support stuff. I want to see social change in the world. Um, but it was very interesting to me to think that these were these guys were you know taking this different approach, being able to give billions of dollars away right in this short period of time, sounded fascinating to me. It also sounded like it was an awful lot of fun. Um, when I, wa I watched those folks talk about it, it was like they were giving a eulogy. Um, like Charles, like Charles was giving his own eulogy, quite frankly. Uh, and uh, it didn't seem to me like they were having fun. And you know, you know, and I had seen, I had been, I, I went on a donor retreat to Miami once, and I had seen these guys have fun. I, I know that I knew that they were capable of it. <laughs> and I just, I raised my hand and I said, you know, why? Well, it doesn't sound like you're having any fun doing this. Why are you so, why are why are you so somber about this? And you know their response was actually well we actually we are having uh, a lot of fun. Um, the thing that Charles said to me that I thought was was pretty interesting is that he you know he was unaccustomed to the interest. He wasn't used to anybody. He didn't he he was used to people being bored. Particularly this was a crowd of younger folks. So I think when he talks to his grandkids or whatever, he's used to them being bored by it. And the fact that I and, and a lot of the other folks there were interested was was a surprise to him. Uh, I was it was happy to me to find out that yes, they were in fact having fun. Do you find philanthropy to be fun? Do you have fun doing it? Was uh, I mean, you had a long career. Sometimes. Sometimes, in general, do you think you could have pursued more fun activities or? <laughs> it's, it's it's serious. Mm -hmm. well, you can, serious can be fun. Sure. Yes. And that was always going to come to an end. They have given away all of their money. Is that correct? Now. Yeah. How much money did they was the did they give away? About six billion. Hmm. So and you were involved in some of the big grants. The big the big uh, towards the spend yes. down. Um, terrific. Uh, was was that fun? Yes. <laughs> was that would you say that that was more? I mean, to me, it seems like that's just so much more exciting than. Well, we're going to try to give away the right percentage so the endowment doesn't yeah, show. Yeah. <laughs> right? Having no, without, without that limitation, must have been Charlie very exciting. Who created Atlantic. Mm -hmm. His reasoning was there'll always be more money, and hopefully people will want to give it away. And right now, there are big needs. Therefore, why keep it invested? Give it away. Mm-hmm. Makes sense to me. Uh, I don't like one of the. I mean, I, I, I'm. Uh, you know, so our, the mosses do fine. 
uh, but we're not we're not Rockefellers, which is <laughs> some, some, it's something I say often. But yeah, it's not uh, maintaining the corpus is not all that difficult. There was in the past, and now I call the the philanth the the, the, the philanthropies. Is, it's, it's quite complicated. There's a number of uh, weird financial vehicles uh, in play. No one really needs to know all of that information, right? The the, the charitable lead annuity trust and, yeah. and and that stuff. So I just sort of call it the Moss Family Foundation. There is a checking account somewhere that that's the name on on the okay. on the checks. But we're you know, so I don't have a five percent limitation. I could give nothing away if I wanted. I, I, it's much more. Much more freedom. The thing about if you find yourself advising mm -hmm. families mm -hmm. who are creating a family foundation, mm -hmm. my advice is always have the majority of board members family members. Mm. Why is that? Side of the family, smart people, and you give away control. Mm -hmm. Then, if suddenly the older family members want to control the foundation, it's gone. Mm -hmm. They can only do it if the board just succumbs to it and gives up its right. Mm -hmm. I think there are two things to do. One is have an advisory board mm -hmm. with the real board, two or three family members. Mm -hmm. Or you can have no real board except a couple of family members and then a board of advisors mm -hmm. whose advice you usually take. <laughs> you don't have to. Mm -hmm. My interview yesterday uh, with a man named Stephen Lieber, who supports almost entirely uh, brain development research, brain science. Uh, he made his money in mutual funds. Doesn't know anything about brain science. <laughs> so he, uh, one of the things that's very interesting about him is he makes very he he decided he wants to support cutting edge brain development research. So he's made he made that decision, which is very I think very important, uh, and and almost exclusively funds that. Uh, some other like his alma mater and some other things, but. Uh, almost hundreds of millions of dollars to brain research so far, um, but again, not he doesn't know which who's the promising. How's he going to find the promising young researcher? He right? needs help. So he has a very accomplished scientific committee, Nobel Prize winners, heads of departments at, at, at universities. Oh well, I'm sure he'll be. <laughs> I'm sure he'll be happy to. <laughs> I'll let him know that you that you agree with his approach. He seems. I, I I think it's great. It's somewhat similar to what we do at the at the unfunded list. So I wanted to be able to give feedback to people who get their grants rejected. And I sometimes I can do that, right? I might know a thing or two about your field, or I may know a donor that might be interested, right? But this, this is just me. Uh, so I have about 125 people now who are similar to me, who know they either, they, some of them run their family foundation like I do. A few of them are much bigger foundations than mine. 
Uh, a lot of them are very good fundraisers. I have a lot of professional grant writers that volunteer to read these proposals and give their thoughts. Um, I'm very fortunate to, that my mother is uh, reads all of the proposals we receive. Um, and she is, as I mentioned, she was a very good student, PhD from Yale and all that. So at the very least, I'm sure we're correcting all the grammar and spelling mistakes <laughs> in these proposals. Um, and uh, you know she knows to, she knows a thing or two about uh, about that other stuff. Um, so you know I, I I very much like that model, but I also do think you know it's, uh, that it's fair uh, for you know the family to want to say you know say this is our money and and we want to be able to you know to uh, you know to make these decisions. Uh, and I also think that on certain issues, if you're funding brain research, you, you just absolutely need experts. If you try to do that without experts, you're gonna you're not gonna do a good job. But I think there are other things where you don't you could. Now, you don't necessarily need Nobel Prize winning scientists uh, to advise. Talk to me a little bit more. You know, I was a donor advisor for a little bit. And it was a somewhat fun. Uh, certainly don't have the experience uh, as you have. And you talked a little bit about it, but what's the key to giving good advice to people? someone I'm working for wants to give it. So I can give other people's advice to them. For instance, you just mentioned that person who wants to give for brain research. Mm -hmm. Well, very few people know about that. Mm -hmm. But a friend of mine works at the Burke Institute, which is all that kind of science. Mm -hmm. He might be the only smart guy who works there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's very hard to do. Very hard. And if the new person is no good, say to the donor, let's wait a while and see what happens. Because one of the greatest weaknesses in institutions is when there's a change in leadership and an inadequate person is appointed, what boards try to do is take the place of the CEO, 
running. They're bought and the worst individual CEO is better than a board. No board can run mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. So as an advisor, find out who's running an institution. Who's the head? And do not recommend giving if the head is no good. Uh, as I mentioned with the unfunded list, our focus is on people who have had their proposals rejected. Uh, and one of the questions I've been asking um, uh, most of the philanthropists that I meet is, uh, what do you do for folks uh, once you decide not to fund them? Do you do anything at all? If the organization is doing what you believe in mm-hmm. and doing it pretty well, I would keep in contact. Mm-hmm. First of all, a good proposal can be come to you from a very inadequate institution. This is true. Who has a good proposal writer? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that the proposal, if they can't do that, they can't do much. Mm-hmm. But they maybe can do only that, and they should be given money. Mm-hmm. Have you ever declined to fund somebody but found some other way to help them? Yes. Um, that's, uh, I, I'm very excited about the, I think, you know, the more philanthropists that do that, the, the more helpful we could be as a sector. I really believe that. Mm-hmm. First of all, if you, if you, <coughs> you get proposals, whatever you give is not a lot of money compared to all <laughs> the no, you not. ask for. Mm-hmm. Yes, oh yes. There are some that the proposal indicates they don't know what they're doing, therefore you just write a nice goodbye. Mm-hmm. But if it's if it's a proposal that shows not enough knowledge, sometimes seeing a person and talking to them is worth more mm-hmm. than $25,000. Absolutely. Grandmother used to say that we always have more money in the Rolodex yes. than we do in the bank account, yes. which is true for Mosses, and it's also true for Rockefellers. Uh, well, I, I like to point out that Gates could call Carlos Slim and Warren Buffett, and that's a lot more money than he has. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure how often um, Gates does call. I think he probably talks to Buffett a lot, uh, and I know they're doing they're, they're doing a lot of partnership, and that's been a lot of good for yes. the folks. Do you have you do you know either of those gentlemen? Mm. And Warren Buffett was a big shareholder. Yeah, I believe I've heard that, yeah. And so every year, the night before the annual meeting, we had a big dinner for our big holders of the stock. And Warren Buffett always came. Mm. I only know him Mm. in that way. Mm. Interesting. uh, So uh, my hometown, Waterville, Right now, the biggest employer is Colby College, where my yeah. parents taught. But uh, I think maybe when I was in high school or a little bit younger, the biggest employer was the the Hathaway shirt plant. Ah, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, because of mostly because of ignorance and a lack of understanding, uh, Warren Buffett would not be welcome in Waterville. I mean, they're based they're all of the impression that he deliberately closed this factory and, and shipped the jobs to Mexico or something. And then. And they were all basically just waiting for a con man to ask to, to come and say, we're going to open the mill back up. 
and they found one. <laughs> um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that shirt factory is not opening back up. No places, or most places are, but it's a good line. <laughs> they want to hear it so bad. I mean, I know these people. They want they ten, twenty years. They've wanted someone. They just want someone to say, "I'm going to give you that good job back." Yes, absolutely. But that's big money. Mm-hmm. What is the, in philanthropy, what do you think is the most exciting thing right now? In what? In the, just the, in, in, in the general field of philanthropy, what's, what are you most excited about? Well, I don't know enough to know who is really thinking. Trump went once because he said, Mm-hmm. What about philanthropy beginning to think? And this is this is McLaughlin mm-hmm. of training people for new jobs. That's a huge need mm. at the moment because the jobs that people that underprepared people could do in factories. I was on Champion Paper Company. Oh, considerably bigger than I mean. We have we also have Scott Tissue Paper in in um, in Waterville. It's enormous, and the um, the factory that made China paper plates is there. Yeah, and it's so big. It's so big, biggest building I've ever seen. And I'm looking up at I can see the Chrysler Building, and I'm telling you that that that, that factory is. It's only one story, but it is much bigger than that. <laughs> Goes on for seems like a mile. Making paper products, um, serious business. So. Mm-hmm. Very important. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? I, I don't know. If I find out, I'll tell you. I don't think he knows. Mm. I know. Yeah, Darren, I believe Darren Walker. I like him. Yeah, I've read some of his stuff. Um, since you mentioned him, the one thing he's said recently is he's going to uh, work with the endowment, uh, make that entirely impact investing. A lot of people are excited about that in the field. Uh, I'm not an investor myself, so. Um, you know, and I know that a lot of the charities out there, they need they need grants. They don't need an investment. I I I think just as there are no perfect people, mm-hmm. there are no perfect companies. Probably so true. If you decide to put all your money only in perfect companies, mm-hmm. they don't exist. Hmm. Can't I can't really argue with that. What is the what's the biggest problem that you think today's philanthropists can realistically solve? Can flan if uh, can philanthropy can philanthropists solve problems? You think that's that we could in my generation have a more a socially just society? Yes. I'd like to think that. 
how should we go? How should I go about making that happen? That's true. Yeah. Not by themselves. Well, it's a whole of the left mm. mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. Thank you very much uh, again for inviting me here. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Uh, do you ever come down to D.C.? I do. Do you? Well, uh, I own uh, my apartment down there called Moss Haven. You are welcome to stop by anytime. Thank you. <laughs> I uh, I have not uh, I have run out of them, but I will I will write down my information for yeah. you if that, if you don't mind, and if you have a card, I'd, I'd love to have that. We can keep you updated about our uh, unfunded list activities and stuff, and the my uh, my program, the unfunded list, um, let you know how we're doing with that. And once the once this episode is is up and online, give you ch the chance to listen I'll to this one and the others. You were fantastic. <laughs>